it, the Bible says that the church is the body of Christ and that the church is the bride of Christ, so we belong to Jesus. We have this connection to him in a way that you can say other things can have the same kind of connection to Jesus or you don't need church or you don't need the bride of Christ or the body of Christ, but then you're kind of inventing your own non-biblical view of the issue. With all of its flaws, with all of its mistakes, with all of its humanness, and we have all of that here, the church is still the hope of the world because we're the body of Christ. This weekend is... It's been incredible already, uh, just here at this campus in West Des Moines, and I know there are a lot of people watching at other campuses all over uh, Iowa right now, so hello to all of you and those of you watching online, wherever you are. Just at this campus this weekend, just this morning, uh, we had a middle school student get up and do the Bible reading that you heard at all of your campuses, and he did it from memory. He, he just laid it out there. He had the bow tie on and everything. I mean, this guy's gunning for my job. It's absolutely awesome. <laughs> And that's good. Uh, that's, that's exactly what we want, that people would be passionate about their faith of all ages. And at it, it the early service, one of the earlier services in the chapel, our traditional service, if you ever long for the old thumper hymns, you know, from the hymnal and the liturgy, we have that service here uh, in the chapel every Sunday morning. It, during that service, Pastor Dave was preaching this morning, and he was um, dealing with a a um, headache, a migraine that was just overwhelming, and his son Jeremy, Pastor Jeremy, was sitting in the front row, and so they tagged each other, and Jeremy got up and did the sermon, and he hadn't written one. He's not preaching this weekend, and I was, I, I went in there because I heard what was happening, Dave's fine, uh, and so, you know, but pray for him, of course, but it was, it was so cool. It was the best sermon that you could ever here because it was just what Jeremy did for his father. It's, it's the church. And if you look for it, you get glimpses of things like this all the time. And like I said, that's just this campus. I'm sure there are other things, God things, Holy Spirit things happening at every single campus uh, all day long. Anytime the church gathers together, there's that potential uh, for those things to happen. And whether they're seen or unseen, we trust and we have faith that God is at work and, and his Holy Spirit is stirring in our midst. And it points us to this one thing. The Bible talks a lot about one thing. Uh, in Psalm 27, King David uh, cries out. He says, I'm asking God for one thing, only one thing. Curly says uh, to the, the Billy Crystal character who's going through a midlife crisis, you, all you city slickers are the same. You come out here looking for that, that thing that's going to fill you up, that's going to satisfy your soul. But the key to life, Curly says, is there's this one thing. It's what King David says too in Psalm 27. I'm asking God for that one thing. So what is it? I'm put the dots here because I'm going I'm to leave that as a cliffhanger for a little while in case you don't know. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3. We'll get to it. But Paul says the same thing. He's the same kind of thing. He says, I'm focusing on this one thing. I, I, I'm, I'm focusing in. I'm, I'm zeroing in on what that one thing is. Jesus brings up the one thing. In a, in a conversation, he, conversation he's having with Martha, he's there with Martha and Mary and Lazarus, the, the siblings, Martha and Mary for sure are there. And in the midst of it, Martha's fussing over a lot of different, uh, you know, stressful details. She has to get ready because she has company and she's mad because her sister isn't helping her. So she, she tells Jesus, tell my sister to help me. And Jesus says, no, dear Martha, there's only, let's say it together, one thing. Say it again. One thing worth being concerned about. And Mary's discovered it. Have you? Mary's discovered it. 
and it will not be taken from her. There is one thing, Jesus says, the Apostle Paul says, King David says, the Bible says, there is this one thing above all other things, as important as all those other things can be and are. It's not that everything else has to be unimportant. I never have understood why Christians go there. In order to, for us to say this one thing is the most important, I don't know why we feel the need to say everything else is bad or everything else is competition or everything else is, is dark or everything else is evil because, because it isn't this one thing. No, there's lots of important things. There's lots of good things in this world. But there's only one, one thing. As we've been going through this series of sermons during the season of Lent, we're looking at the I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And just by way of quick review, it goes like this. There are seven I am statements that Jesus makes, these ego me in the Greek, that identify him and identify our God for us, identify a biblical view of who God is. And along the way, they help us understand ourselves and the relationship we have with our Creator. The first I am statement is in John chapter 6, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Everyone say, bread of life. life. In chapter 8, and we looked at that the first weekend of Lent. Then the second weekend, we looked at Jesus' second I am statement, I am the light of the world. Everyone say, light of the world. world. And then last weekend, Jesus' third and fourth I am statements, they come together in the same teaching in John chapter 10. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I am the gate. And now today, you heard it in your Bible reading, whatever campus you're at, Jesus says, I am the resurrection, and I am the life. As we go through these series of sermons, there's a crescendo building. As Jesus moves us closer and closer to the cross as we follow him, to to Holy Week and to Good Friday and to the celebration of his resurrection on Easter Sunday. Things are picking up. Activity levels are picking up. But when Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life, it's in the context of John chapter 11. And Jesus is back with Mary and Martha again. The same Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus said to Martha, there's just one thing and you're not getting it. But Mary has and it's not going to be taken away from her. There is this one thing that Paul talks about, that David talks about. Well, here in John chapter 11, Jesus says, I am the, res- I am the resurrection and the life. But the way the story begins is kind of peculiar, at least if we're going to give it an honest reading. And the disciples sort of represent our, our, our the feeling the oddness of it all. Jesus gets message from Mary and Martha, these friends that he has. The reason he told Martha Uh, that you're fussing about too many things and Mary has chosen the one thing is because he was friends with them. Every time he'd he'd stop by Bethany, he'd stop by their house and he'd hang out with his friend Lazarus, his friend Mary, his friend Martha. They'd uh, have a meal together, hang out together. So when Lazarus got sick, Jesus' friend, Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, send a message to Jesus. Jesus is out of town. He's not in Bethany. Bethany is just right outside of Jerusalem. Jesus is somewhere else. And so they send a message to Jesus saying, look, Lord, your dear friend is sick. The implication is pretty obvious. You better get over here. After all, we know who you are. We're your friend. In the midst of these I am statements in the Gospel of John, that's not all John covers. John also covers the miracles of Jesus. 
the way he walks on water, the way he, he, he feeds 5,000 men plus women and children with just five loaves of bread and two fish, the way he opens the eyes of a blind man, the story in John chapter 9, which dominates the entire chapter, the, the way he, he, he heals the sick. This is Jesus, and Mary and Martha know who he is, and they know the, the healing power he has. And so they had to think, look, if you're out there healing faces in the crowd, total strangers to you, Jesus, which is great, of course you're going to come immediately. You're going to drop everything you're doing to come to your friend's house because your friend Lazarus is sick. You, you've got to come. It was kind of an obvious invitation. And that's what makes it so odd because Jesus says, no, we're going to hang here for a while. Now, he doesn't say it exactly that way, but that's a paraphrase and it's accurate. That's... He says, no, we're, we're not going. We've got things to do right here, right now. And, and, and the disciples don't get it. And we might not get it either. If we're going to be honest, right, there are times probably in your life when you have prayed and you wonder why Jesus didn't show up, why God wasn't there, why he didn't answer your prayer the way you asked him to answer it, why his answer was either no or sometimes even harder, wait, just wait. Because that's Jesus' answer here. They're, they're practically praying to him. Lord, your, your dear friend is sick. C come. Come and do what you do for your friend like you do it for strangers. C come and do it for this, this person you have this relationship with as a brother. C c come and heal him. No, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going right now. To make matters even more peculiar, then Jesus later says, I am coming. But it's days later. And by now it's too late and Jesus knows it. In verse 14 he says, well, Lazarus is dead. It's too late. Jesus is showing up late. He's not going to, from the world's perspective. And then next verse, in verse 15, he says, but let's go. So come on, let's go see him. Now that he's died, let, let's go and, and, and see what's happening. Doesn't that seem like his, Jesus all of a sudden is just in a bad season? Like his timing is suddenly off? And, you know, that he's, he's not hitting on all cylinders anymore? If we're going to be honest, I think there's no other way to read this text except that we know this is Jesus and he is irrational and he isn't crazy and his timing is always perfect. So there must be something more going on here. And of course there is. And that something else that's going on here is the key to help you find the one thing and to help you unpack this text and this story. It is for your sakes, Jesus says. It is for you. Wherever you are right now, whatever campus you're at, turn to the person on your right and left and say, Jesus did this for you. Because it's true. It's for you. It's not just for Mary and Martha. It's not just for the disciples. It's for all of us. It's for anybody who hears this story just the way it happened. Because you know what? If you're inventing a religion and you're going to make up a story about how great Jesus is, you wouldn't have written it like this. Jesus would have been on the spot the way the world wanted him to be on the spot, right when he was supposed to be on the spot, right when the world thinks he's supposed to be there. The only way you write a story like this is if this is the way the story happened. The only way it comes out this way is if it's because there were eyewitnesses around him who said, well, that's what he said. And it sure seemed odd to us at the time, but maybe he wasn't late at all. Maybe he was right on time, and he's hinting at it here. It's for you that I waited. It's for you that I didn't go to Bethany to heal my friend Lazarus. 
I'm glad I wasn't there. For now you will really believe. Come on, let's go. I love the way Thomas responds to this in the next verse. Remember Thomas, doubting Thomas, the doubter? If any of you ever have struggles with doubts or seasons or years or times when you kind of, you just get peppered with these doubts, you've got a friend in Thomas. Thomas sort of represents you in these stories. On Easter Sunday, he's going to fall to his knees and say, my Lord and my God, because he finally sees what Jesus wanted him to see and believe in all along. But Jesus has grace for him and patience for him. Please notice Jesus doesn't kick him out of the club. Jesus doesn't put him in the penalty box. Jesus doesn't say, oh, Thomas, what's your problem? He just loves Thomas. So he probably appreciates Thomas' quirky personality. Maybe you have a friend like this in your group of friends who hangs out. When Jesus says, come on, let's go see him, the disciples know. In fact, if you were to poll the disciples, they probably weren't too keen on going to Bethany anyway. Because as I said earlier, Bethany was right next to Jerusalem. And the last time Jesus was in that area, they tried to kill him and he barely got out. And the time before that, when Jesus went to Jerusalem, same thing. They tried to kill him and he barely escaped. And if you're in the band of 12 disciples who are hanging out closest to the guy they're trying to kill, it's kind of a dangerous neighborhood for you to hang out in. So you're not going to want to go hang out in Bethany or Jerusalem or anywhere, anywhere near that region of the world. It's not safe. So the disciples, when Jesus says, let's not go, they're probably like, oh, thank goodness. Although that's weird that he wouldn't go heal his friend when he's being asked to go. And then after he dies and Jesus says, well, my friend has died now, so let's go. Thomas says, think, just drip with sarcasm in the Greek here. Well, we might as well go and die with him too. Let's go, everybody. It's going to be fun. It's going to be absolutely awesome. Here we go. We're following Jesus to Bethany, but we're all going to die. Woo! So that's Thomas. And off they go. But when they get there, Jesus is going to get an earful from his friends. His friends don't mean anything you know, disrespectful about it, but Jesus is their friend. And he didn't come through. And they knew, they had to know, they had to suspect at least that he got the message. And so Martha said, first thing, before she said, hey, Jesus, so good to see you. Oh, so nice of you to come. She said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. Go ahead and feel the emotion of that statement. Because maybe sometimes you've felt that way with God too, if you're going to be honest. And God can take it. Lord, if you would have shown up, if you would have broken through, if you would have just done something, then my brother wouldn't have died or my friend wouldn't have died or, 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 or this wouldn't have happened or my marriage wouldn't have fallen apart or, or, or that stuff wouldn't have happened that happened to me that was so devastating. Lord, if you, would have, if you would have just been here like I asked you to be, like I prayed for you to be, my brother wouldn't have died. To make it even more interesting, 11 verses later, that's just Jesus and Martha talking. Mary's not there she's back in the house this is outside of the house Jesus encounters Mary Martha's sister Lazarus's sister and Mary says the exact same thing before she says oh Jesus welcome we're so glad you're here good to see you again she says word for word the same thing as her sister Lord if only you had been here my brother would not have died which tells us the sisters were talking about this and so was the whole community you know if he'd been here we sent for him he could have healed our brother. He's a young man. Certainly he'd be for that, wouldn't he? I mean, this is the Jesus we know. 
Jesus responds to Martha, the first sister, when she challenges them with, with these emotional, hurtful words, they're hurt. Jesus responds by saying, well, you know, there's a resurrection. And Martha says, well, of course, we know our Jewish faith and the scriptures of the Old Testament point to this. They allude to a vision for, for the possibility, the potential of a, of a resurrection of an afterlife, that there might be something out there beyond the grave, but there'd have to be a Messiah who would come. Get that part. There'd have to be a Messiah, the anointed one of God, the Christ who would come, who would usher that in. Jewish people still today are waiting for that Messiah. A lot of Jewish people believe that Jesus is it. A lot of Jewish people don't. All of Jesus' first disciples were Jewish people who believed it, and then they became known as Christians. So we share this same history. And Martha says, well, I, I, know, I know there's a resurrection. I know we have this hope someday down the road, but what good does that do now? And then Jesus says it. He says it. He says, Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. That's who I am. I'm the resurrection and the life. Martha, it's not a future hope. It's not a spiritual wish. It's not a, gee, it would be nice if after people die who we love, we could hope that they have some kind of afterlife. You hope for that resurrection, and Martha, what I'm telling you is that resurrection just showed up for you. I'm it. It's not just a future hope, it's a present reality. And it's me, Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection and the life. And anyone who believes in me is gonna live, even after dying. And everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe this, Lutheran Church of Hope? Do you believe that this is the most important question you could ever be asked? Do you believe that Jesus is the one, that he is not just the bread of life and the light of the world and the shepherd for the sheep and the gate, but he is the resurrection and the life? We think so highly of this verse and it inspires us so much in this particular congregation and in this campus of this congregation that we engraved it on the wall in the original Greek of scripture over by our cross so that anytime you see it, you can remember the one thing. Jesus Christ is the one who is the resurrection and the life, which means he looks square in the face of the death of Lazarus and says, I've got this covered. It isn't the last word and it isn't the final answer. And it means he looks square in the face of the death of your loved ones who you may be grieving right now. And he says, it's not just a future hope. It's a present reality. I am the resurrection and the life for them. I am. And I showed up to tell you that today, Jesus says through my living word. And so I am not late. I'm right on time because he had to die for me to be the resurrection for him. I am his life. I am his resurrection. And I showed up in the person with the full power of God to bring it to you. Martha, Mary, Lazarus, grievers at this funeral, Lutheran Church of Hope, anybody who ever encounters this good news, hear it again. Anyone, that's you, who believes in me, the resurrection and the life, Jesus says, even after dying, you're going to live. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. That's the one thing. 
you know, it's great that Jesus is the bread of life. I mean, it's absolutely great. And it's totally, um, meat, right, and salutary, as the old liturgy used to say, for us to focus on these things, to be the bread of life, to take care of our daily needs, to, to, to feed us, to be the light of the world, to inspire us, to warm us, to enlighten us. To, to be the shepherd, the good shepherd who guides us and leads us and admonishes us and calls us to repentance and, and calls us into the, the protection of the gate and watches over us. But to be the resurrection and the life, I hope you're getting a feel for that, not just in your head but in your heart, how much bigger of a statement this is than all these things. Because what Jesus is saying here is, I'm not just another spiritual guru. I'm not just a moral teacher. I'm not even just a revolutionary leader. I'm not just somebody who's coming along into your life and into the existence of this creation and coming along and saying, well, here's one flavor of spirituality or religion that you could grab onto in the midst of all sorts of other philosophies of life. And you know what? No matter what they are, as long as they you know, make you feel good, then they must be equally good. Jesus is saying, with all due respect to how important all these things are, daily bread, enlightenment, guidance, I'm this. I'm the resurrection and the life. And that's the one thing that we're going to all need. If we don't right now, we will at some point. We will need more than a wish upon a star. And we have it, and so to miss that, if God has given that to the world, and then we miss it because we say, well, that's just one amongst many options, then we're gonna miss out on the blessing of it too, and the power of it in our lives. After Jesus says this to Martha, he goes to Mary, and they have a conversation. Mary says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But their conversation isn't really words after that, it's emotion. Jesus sees Mary weeping, and this is his friend. And when you see a friend who you love dearly like that, brokenhearted, doesn't it break your heart? I mean, if you're a good friend. And when Jesus looked out at the crowd of people and saw all of them weeping because their friend Lazarus had died, this is a tragic death. Make no mistake about it. This was a young man. And they're all crushed. And Jesus, because he loves people, joins them. He's crushed too which leads to the shortest verse in the whole Bible, but one of the most powerful, John chapter 11, verse 35. Jesus wept. There, you just memorized a verse of the Bible today. Everyone say, Jesus wept. Now everyone think about what that means. That the one who's the resurrection and the life, the full power, the creator of the universe, shows up at a funeral and he weeps with us. Where's God in our sorrow and our pain? He's in the darkness with us. He's in the ditch with us because he loves us. A few chapters later in John 16, Jesus will say, brokenhearted, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. I'm the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. I'm overcoming your grief and your sorrow and your mourning. I have the power to take on the worst this world can throw at you and to defeat it, to destroy it, 
Who else can do that? What other spiritual guru has that power? Do you see how important it is that Jesus is more than bread, light, and shepherd? That he's resurrection and life? And do you see how that changes everything? Not just for us, but how we see this world and the primacy of who Jesus is. Not just as one amongst many spiritual options, but God's gift to the whole world, to all of us. This is the way God overcomes death. It is by showing up in the person of Jesus Christ and coming alongside of us and weeping with us. And the Greek also says not only was Jesus heartbroken and sad and weeping, but he was also raging. There was a rage building up inside of him. Isn't that how you feel when a loved one dies? A combination of anger and sadness, profound anger and sadness, almost impossible to articulate. It goes beyond expression. It's just such an overwhelming feeling. God knows. He felt it in the person of Jesus Christ at that moment. So the one who's the resurrection and the life comes alongside of us with compassion, but then he backs it up. Who else do you know who can do that? He walks to the tomb and he says, roll the stone away, only I'm almost, I'm almost positive. He said it in a Batman voice. Because it's cooler. Roll the stone away. I mean, something big was about to happen. <laughs> this, is kind of a, this is kind of a pinnacle moment. And then he said, Lazarus, come out. I'm sure, just like that. Or something like that. And the dead man who'd been in the tomb for four days runs out of the tomb. Runs out of the tomb. He was dead and now he's alive again. Please, Try to, as best you can, put yourself in that setting as one of the crowd of mourners who were there. This Jesus shows up, you're like, oh, there he is. That's the guy, he was late. <laughs> We've been talking about him. I don't know how you even dare to show yourself here. I, I don't know, what, what, what do you think can come here? What kind of a friend are you? We're friends, we're here. But you didn't show up. And then... He starts crying, and he seems absolutely filled with rage. And it, you know, part of that was his empathy for his friends and the mourners who were there. But the other part of that was Jesus is the Son of God, and he knows he's just a few weeks away from his own tomb. He had to be thinking about that too. Here's my future. Here's where I'm headed. This is where I'll be in a matter of days. And now he's given us a foretaste of the resurrection story on Easter. And so when he walks to the tomb and he opens it up, imagine, I mean, try to put yourself there. What would you be thinking? What? I mean, this guy is really going to make a fool of himself. And then he says to a guy who's been dead for four days and is wrapped as a mummy, come out of the tomb? Who says that? Who's, what spiritual guru do you know who shows up and says, dead people, wake up, come back to life. I am the resurrection and the life. And then he backs it up. And then just when you think it's going to be a catastrophe for him, Lazarus comes running out of the tomb. And Jesus says, unwrap him. <laughs> just like that. And give him something to eat. Because he's worried about his food intake over the last four days, right? And then he just sort of goes, and there's going to be a big party for him next chapter. Guess where it's going to be? At the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. 
And just for a little fun, John has a sense of humor. He points out, Martha did all the cooking. <laughs> Lazarus just ate it, a typical man. And uh, Mary took out the expensive perfume and poured it all over Jesus' feet. I'm the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. And that's the one thing that all of us are going to need somewhere along the way. Wednesday night, I got home from teaching page two, and I came face to face with some really hard news. I need to give you a little backstory. When I was in sixth grade, a couple of months into my sixth grade year, my dad came home and he said, hey, I'm going to leave the church where I'm the pastor here in Montana, and I'm going to become the director for evangelism for the American Lutheran Church in Minneapolis. So we were moving to the Twin Cities. I was devastated. I had already started my sixth grade year. Mr. Lavison was my teacher. I had my buddies. I had my little league baseball team. I had my basketball team. We just won the fifth grade city championship after all the year before. I mean, everything was clicking. I mean, I, I had my group. I had my life. And my dad came and said, we're moving to Minnesota. That was the worst thing I could have heard. I mean, I was really upset. We moved to Minnesota. It got worse the first day. I, I walk into school, Washburn Elementary in Bloomington, Minnesota, right on 84th Street. And, and I walk in and my new teacher, Mr. Fiola, says, and now here's our new student, Mike Householder from Montana. And a bunch of guys in the classroom, Montana, what are you, cowboy? I'm dying. I'm dying. All these kids are looking at me. I walk into the room. Mr. Fiola sits me down next to Jeff Sorvik. What a gift. There's Jeff. This, <laughs> that's Jeff. That's his wife. Uh, he, uh, he's here with his wife again, and there are three kids, and, and their spouses, and grandkids, and dogs. His son, in a wheelchair, uh, was paralyzed in a skiing accident in high school. Jeff became one of my best friends right away. He was a deeply devoted, Christ-centered dude. Uh, never underestimate the potential uh, for a sixth grader to be a deeply devoted, Christ-centered dude or dudette. We see it around hope all the time. Don't underestimate their faith. Jeff had it, and he reached out to me. He befriended me right away. He, he took me into his group of friends. We built up an even bigger group of friends. We had the same kind of, you know, passions for life, sports and goofing off. And, and we'd sleep over at each other's houses and have our buddies come over and do that too. And we, we just, he was first chair trumpet. I was first chair tuba. There was only one tuba. Uh, there were, <laughs> so I was last chair tuba also. I mean, take your pick however you see it. There were 13 trumpets, so that tells you how musical he was. That's just Jeff. Smart, intelligent, Christ-centered, kind, funny, athletic, my friend. A few years later, we moved to Chicago, and uh, my dad became pastor of the church where I'd meet my wife. Uh, but I was really sad to leave there, too, because of Jeff and all my other friends. Jeff uh, threw me a surprise going-away party the night before we moved. I ended up sleeping over at his house one more night with some of our friends. And then we got up the next morning, got in the car, moved to Chicago. And you know, guys, we didn't write a lot of letters to each other, so we kind of lost touch. But whenever I'd go back and visit, I'd always hang out with Jeff. And it would take about 10 seconds, if that, for us to click back into the way it used to be. He's that kind of friend. You probably have some like that. So I, I had this friendship with Jeff. 
Wednesday night, I get home from teaching page two here at church, our midweek service at six o'clock in the chapel. I get home and um, I find out Jeff died. I know. <laughs> That's exactly my reaction. Blew me away. I mean, he's, my, he's young. He's my age. He, uh, to make matters worse, I don't know if it's, how it could be worse, he died in a, in a house fire in his home where his son and daughter-in-law barely got out at the last second, as I understand it, and by then the firefighters wouldn't let anybody go back in. And he didn't make it out. <laughs> Come on. That's not right. That's a messed up fallen world reminder. That doesn't happen <laughs> when God's kingdom finally comes and completely comes. Not a guy like that. You see, Jeff, uh, he answered God's call to become a pastor in the evangelical free denomination. I, I went down the same road in the Lutheran church, which is much purer and more righteous, but it's... <laughs> E-free is just Lutherans with good attitudes, so we have a lot of, historically that's true. So we have a lot of affinity there too. Uh, we, I'm just, I, was, I have been able to think of little else since Wednesday night, since I found out. And here's the thing, knowing I was gonna preach on this anyway. I mean, I love Jeff Sorvik. I don't, really know his family because we drifted apart. We would find each other on Facebook and chat, and so I knew of them, and he knew of my family, but we never got the families together. We, uh, we had this connection, though, and as I think about him, and as I particularly have a broken heart for his wife, imagine she's out grocery shopping on a Saturday afternoon. It was middle of the day, and she comes home, and her house is burned down, and her husband has died. That's what she comes home to. Life is very fragile, this side of heaven. Imagine what she's going through now and her kids are going through and, and their grandkids, what they have to deal with, the pieces that they have to pick up. If Jesus is only this, I'm sorry, that's not gonna be enough for her or for me or for you at some point in your life. This just isn't gonna do it, Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm gonna need more. I'm gonna need you to be something beyond just the bread of life, the light of the world, and the shepherd. I'm gonna need you to be the resurrection and the life. I'm gonna need this one thing in my life. I, I, I'm gonna say we're all gonna need it at some point. We all are gonna need it at some point because we live in a fallen world where we all have to deal with our mortality and the mortality of our friends and our loved ones at some point. And so if all you have in life is a spirituality or a religion that is less than this, that doesn't include somebody who doesn't just say it but backs it up and goes to the tomb of his friend and says, hey, dead guy, wake up and come back to life again. And then a few weeks later, he goes to the cross himself and he overcomes death yet again on his own and he's raised to new and everlasting life and the Bible promises that your faith joins you to Jesus Christ. Isn't that a good deal? So what happens to Jesus happens to you. What happens to Jesus happens to you. What happens to Jesus happens 
happens to you. So when he dies, your sin is put to death. And when he's raised from the dead, you too are raised up to a new and everlasting life. Because the Bible, not some preacher or some spiritual guru, the word of God promises. If you've been united with Jesus Christ by faith in a death like his, you will most certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And I'm telling you, that's my only hope right now is I grieve the death of my friend. I absolutely got to have this. And so do you. It's the one thing. Jesus wasn't late. He was introducing the world to who he is so that we could believe in him. It's to your benefit that I do this, Jesus says, so you can believe. So that you can believe I'm more than just another spiritual option. So that you can know that I am the resurrection and the life. It's so tempting, though, because we're human, so we drift, right? we got a little Thomas in us. We've got a little Judas or Peter in us. We've we, we got these times when we wander away from God. I think we need a little levity, right? Any of you old enough to remember the 1970s? How many of you remember the 1970s? Some of you were there, but you still don't remember. That's a whole other sermon and another <laughs> subject. You know, do the hustle. Da, da, da. I was a kid in the 70s. My parents were in their 30s. And they were totally into fondue parties. <laughs> ah, some of you were too, huh? Fondue, it's still around, sort of, but in the 70s, it was all the rage, where we live, in our community anyway. My parents would be like, oh, we're gonna have fondue. We had our own fondue pot. Everybody had a fondue pot. Everybody invite their friends over for, guess what? Fondue. <laughs> all, if you're like, what is fondue? What's the big deal? That's a good question. <laughs> It's a metal stick with a piece of bread on the end and you dip it in melted cheese. That's it. But, I mean, here's a picture of an actual fondue party from the actual 70s. So there's the fondue pot in the middle. The fondue pot had a, get this part, a spirit flame underneath it. Some of you did fondue and you didn't even know that. You were dealing with some wacky spirituality. That's what you were doing. But if, you know, your heart isn't there, it's tame. But my parents would be like, well, what's not to love? There's bread and cheese and friends and community and hanging out and laughter and wine and all these things. I mean, what a, what a great way to spend a night. Fondue. <laughs> I have a feeling we're going to have like two new fondue groups in the, in the church now. <laughs> we'll pray and then we'll have cheese. That'd be fine. But what's the new fondue for you? Because you ever notice how these, these trends come and go? You know, they, 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 you think, this is it. Because back then, some people were saying, who took it really seriously, this is the one thing. This is the thing my soul's been longing for forever. Fondue, cheese. Uh, th this is the thing. This, this is what I've always wanted. This, this makes me so, and, I, and not only that, it's spiritual See, when something is, is good, but it also can have some spiritual aspects to it, it really can get its hooks into you. And you start thinking, this is better than church. This is better than God. This is better than the Bible because I, I get goosebumps and I, I really feel alive and it makes me feel so good. And this is a one, it's almost like an affair when you think about it. But then how does that end? Almost never does it end well. Same thing when we try to replace Jesus with anything else. Please, hear, hear my heart on this. It's not that all the things that are out there, I mean, I'm into things, 
You don't have to say, since there's only one thing, everything else is wrong, everything else is bad, everything else is evil. No more yoga, no more CrossFit, no more dinner parties, no more bridge club, no more youth sports activities, no more, it's all bad. Jesus good, everything else that makes us feel good or connected or community or spiritual, all bad. I'm not saying that. The Bible doesn't say that. Those things, all of them can be really, really good. All of them. I'm into things. I'm into sports. My bracket. <laughs> crashed after about two hours, you know, the tournament started. I was picking all the upsets. This wasn't a year for first round upsets, so I was done. Pastor Andy, in the 99th percentile right now, in America. He's picking them up, he's just out of control good. Shandy, who does our website and takes some pictures on our communications team, brilliant, talented person who knows nothing about college basketball, <laughs> is one day away from picking the entire Final Four. She's got them all ready to go. She picked Oregon. Who picked Oregon? <laughs> what kind of a deal is that? Not only, she picked Florida, who plays later today. If Florida wins, you might want to find Shandy and say, I perceive that you're a prophet, Shandy, and I want to learn more from you. <laughs> because get this, I ran into Shandy this morning. She was here helping with hospitality. I said, Shandy, you must be behind, you, there must be something about you I didn't know that you are a huge college basketball fan. She says, I never watched. <laughs> we live in a fallen world, sinful and, and, and messed up. She never watches and she's about to pick the entire Final Four. That's just not right. I'm into things though, I'm into sports, I'm, in, I'm, into, I've got a, I'm on a NASCAR fantasy league. I'm in the 98th percentile on that. Yeah, my, yeah, I'm, I'm rolling on that. Mike, not doing as good this year, but you'll catch up. We, we, we have, I, I, I'm, into, I'm into health. I was kind of forced into it three or four years ago. And now I'm eating right and I'm walking. I'm a walking madman, I have this watch. It keeps track of my steps. I'm getting, I get a bunch during sermons because apparently I'm pretty active because I'm up here. And, and I, I checked out, I always hit the minimum. It could be, if it's, if it's 11 o'clock at night and I haven't hit my steps, I'm on the elliptical. I'm going, I'm going to hit my goal. I'm, I'm goofy nuts about this stuff. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. In fact, I think it's good. Take care of your body, to get, get into things, build community. That's a big part of our theme this year, to know and to be known. But please, never let it become the one thing. Never start to think that it's an adequate replacement for the one who says, I am the resurrection and the life. And the bond he has with his body is the body of Christ. There is no substitute for Jesus Christ. No matter how spiritual those other things are that you found, no matter how buzzed they make you feel, the goosebumps you get, the, how wonderful it is. But if the church is what the Bible says the church is, the body of Jesus Christ, the one who is the resurrection and the life, then that's the one thing. And all those other things can be really, really important in our lives, as long as they don't become our religion as long as they don't become the one thing, as long as they don't become an inadequate substitute for the one who shows up right on time and says, I am the resurrection and the life, 
This is the one thing I've been looking for, David says in Psalm 27, to live with God in his house forever, my whole life long. This is the one thing I focus on, Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, to press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize. This is why we build churches in Africa, so more people can know the one thing. People who've never heard of Jesus. Over 40,000 people are showing up at, at churches that you have built in Ghana today who wouldn't have known the one thing if it weren't for you. This is why we have first communion classes to pass on the faith to another generation. We have them this weekend, and if you missed them, we have another one tomorrow night. This is why we encourage you to invite your friends to Easter worship so they can meet the one who is the resurrection and the life. Because if you love them, you're going to want them to know the one thing. And you aren't going to want to keep this stuff to yourself. You're going to want to share it as the good news that it is. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand up? If you've got kids in the Sunday school, you can go grab them. I'm turning it over to the campus pastors right now. Here at this campus, we're going to sing a song. Uh, this is a great song. Perry's going to teach it to us. It's new. It's all about Lazarus and what uh, it was like for him in the midst of this story and encountering the one who is the resurrection and the life. Sing it out. Go in peace. Serve the Lord. I was buried beneath 